You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Kenneth Cameron. Ryan Burdekin is an international advisor to numerous national human rights institutions. He was special advisor on national institutions to the first three United Nations High Commissioners for Human Rights. Burdekin was also Federal Human Rights Commissioner of Australia. He's a visiting professor here at RWI. Thank you very much for joining us today, Brian. Pleasure. Could you explain what human rights institutions are and tell us a little bit about why they're necessary? Sure. Basically, national human rights institutions are organisations set up at the national level to monitor whether or not governments are honouring the international human rights treaties that they've signed up to and ratified in many cases. Uh, But national human rights institutions have half a dozen important functions. They monitor whether or not the government in the country concerned is actually, as I said, living up to its treaty obligations. They have a major responsibility to educate people what their human rights are. Most people in most countries really don't know exactly what their human rights are. So national human rights institutions also do a lot of research and they provide advice not only to the government, the executive government, that is to ministers um, or to the president or the prime minister, but they also advise the national parliament, the legislature, uh, which in, in many countries is a very important inroad into getting messages across to the government and getting important issues debated. In addition, uh, importantly, in the Asia-Pacific and in Africa and Latin America particularly, and in a few European countries, they have a very strong uh, mandate to investigate violations of human rights. Uh, That is, you can come to them. It doesn't cost anything. National institutions are a cost-free institution for handling violations of human rights. And finally, in many cases now, national human rights institutions, particularly national human rights commissions in the Asia-Pacific and in Africa, uh, and some in Latin America, interact with the courts. That is, they take uh, to the High Court or the Supreme Court or the Constitutional Court important questions relating to uh, differences which exist in many countries between international law and what is binding on a government in terms of their international human rights treaty obligations. Uh, that have not yet been incorporated into the national law or domestic legislation. And so uh, very often there's, there's a gap, sometimes a very big gap, between the rights in the international human rights treaties and what are protected in the law of the country concerned. What are national inquiries and how are they beneficial? Well, national inquiries, it's a strategy that I guess we invented in Australia in the late 80s. The first one uh, was into homeless children. Why was it that we had so many homeless children? So a national inquiry conducted by a national human rights institution is a way of looking at widespread or systemic violations of human rights. So if you come to me as an individual with a human rights complaint, that's one thing. But in that particular case, we had many, many thousands of homeless children in our major cities. Uh, I could see there was a problem. We had to do something about that problem. 
uh, part of the problem was that, that those homeless children didn't know about their human rights or about the Human Rights Commission. So a national human rights institution, particularly in the Asia-Pacific and, and Africa and Latin America, uh, and sometimes in Europe, has the power to initiate an inquiry even without getting a complaint. So where you've got a widespread or systemic violation of human rights, and at the minute we've just finished a book about this, about the national inquiries that have been done by national human rights commissions um, in the Asia-Pacific region in the last 30 years since I chaired that first national inquiry. And those national inquiries have now been done on a wide range of subjects. Um, in Australia, we did them on uh, homeless children, on people with disabilities, particular psych psychiatric uh, disabilities. Um, that's been followed up in a number of other countries. In India, they did a major national inquiry on the right to health and working with a thousand uh, health-related NGOs produced very, very important and substantive changes, not only in uh, Indian policies and practice and legislation, but in the amount of resources that were allocated for uh, people, particularly in rural and isolated areas where there were very few or no health services. So we've had the right to health, we've had looking at the rights of homeless people, we've looking had national inquiries looking at the rights of people with mental illness. Um, in Indonesia and Malaysia, Indonesia being one of the four biggest countries in the world as, in terms of population, as some of your listeners would know. Um, Indonesia and Malaysia both in the last couple of years have launched national inquiries on the land rights of indigenous peoples. Now, so we're talking about violations of human rights, which in, in these cases involve millions and millions of people. Um, you're not going to solve the problem by looking at one case at a time and solving it for that individual. What a national inquiry endeavours to do is to look at the root causes of problems and then provide advice and recommendations to the government and to the parliament about what needs to be done uh, to address those issues um, and to prevent those sorts of violations happening in future. You might think some of these subjects sound like pretty difficult ones to deal with. They are. Uh, one of the first national inquiries done after the ones we did in Australia was by the Mongolian National Human Rights Commission. Very small commission. At the time they had three commissioners and I think 11 staff. And they did a national inquiry on torture, which was a major problem in that country at the time. And they produced uh, very, very important changes in terms of uh, proper training for the police in terms of investigating cases instead of just torturing people. They produced major changes in the laws of Mongolia. They had directions given by the Supreme Court. Uh, they had a major resolution adopted by the Parliament in terms of, of practices that uh, needed to be stopped and in terms of resources that needed to be allocated for proper training for the police and so on. Um, more recently, we've had uh, national inquiries conducted by the National Human Rights Commission in Afghanistan, a National Human Rights Commission working in tremendously difficult circumstances in a country still um, bedeviled by conflict in, in many parts of the country and in a country where the rights of women, uh, one of the most egregious and, and serious violations of the rights of women relate to honour killing. So the National Human Rights Commission in Afghanistan, to its enormous credit, uh, did a national inquiry on, on uh, honour killings, very sensitive subject, obviously um, in some cases a lot of resistance. Uh, they also did a national inquiry on a practice called Bachibazi, which is um, uh, a custom in some parts of the area whereby uh, older men have stables or groups of little boys, younger boys, who are used for the purposes of sexual exploitation and, and entertainment. 
Um, these are some of the things. I mean, the New Zealand National Commission has done a national inquiry on the rights uh, of people with disabilities to transport. Now, in my case, it was a big national inquiry on the rights of people with psychiatric disabilities. In the case of the New Zealand Commission, um, following the ones that I did in Australia, it was on the, the rights of people to have access to transport. So perhaps the last one I'll mention um, was, a, was a very important national inquiry done by the National Human Rights Commission in my own country on Aboriginal children, children who were taken away from their families in the most appalling policy that existed in my country many, many years ago of taking Aboriginal children away from their families and putting them in mission homes or placing them with families of European origin uh, in the mistaken belief that somehow they would be better off. And so that was a that led to many, many tragedies. It led to the dislocation, to this disintegration of families, to children being deprived of, of their parents, to parents being deprived of their children. And the National Human Rights Commission did one of the most difficult national inquiries I think that's ever been done um, by listening to the people, by trying to understand the history. It's, it's very traumatic for a lot of people in these national inquiries, people who've been tortured, people who've been dispossessed, people who've had their land or their children taken away from them. Um, and I suppose what's important to emphasise is that whereas when I was Federal Human Rights Commissioner in Australia, we handled, I don't know, maybe nine or 10,000 individual complaints in about eight years, in a national inquiry, the inquiry itself, in the case of the one on homeless children, from beginning to end with all of the public hearings, um, with letting people come and give evidence, with letting people make written submissions, that one took me nearly two years. The one on people with psychiatric disabilities, uh, human rights abuses of the mentally ill, involved a, a wide range of, of, of issues. Uh, that took me just over three years and involved 1,372 witnesses and submissions. So you can see that a national inquiry, it's not something that is, is done much in Europe, but they are enormously important in the Asia-Pacific. And they are probably, in my view at least, the most important and effective strategy we have developed for doing a series of things simultaneously. First of all, for looking at a very widespread violation of human rights, where you need to produce not only legal changes, but programmatic changes and policy changes. And you've got to get the government and the parliament to do that. And in order to do that, you've got to listen to the public. You've got to get evidence from people. You've got to give people a chance to explain what's happened to them. And in the case, I remember of the Homeless Children's Inquiry and, and the Mental Illness Inquiry, one of the most compelling things was that time after time, people said to us, this is the first time anybody's ever listened to us. And so the strategy of a national inquiry, in a way, is the most effective way I think we've found of giving voice sometimes to the voiceless, of giving a platform um, for the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in some of our communities, of becoming, if you like, the national institution becoming an advocate for and on behalf of those people. And I think that's probably one of the most important roles that a national institution can play. What are the key challenges that you have faced in regard to establishing human rights institutions? Well, there's lots of them. I guess I've been privileged to uh, work and have some role in setting up national human rights commissions in, in over 70 countries over the last 20, 25 years. Um, in my own country, there was enormous political opposition. There was opposition from the legal profession. There was a misunderstanding. And perhaps if I can go back 
uh, just to the broader picture for a moment. In, in our countries, both in Europe and in uh, common law countries and in former colonial countries of the various colonial powers, be they British, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch or whatever, uh, we've, we've got three sources of power in, in, in traditionally in terms of division of power. You've got the executive government with the president or the prime minister at the head. You've got the legislature or the parliament, which is the body responsible for passing laws, amending laws, elected by the people. And you've got the judiciary or the courts. What's happened in the last 50 or 60 years in particular is that some of us have felt very strongly uh, and I guess my history in setting up National Human Rights Commissions goes back about 40 years uh, to a point uh, where we, we could see that even though the courts and the parliament are supposed to act as a check and a balance on the power of the judiciary, that doesn't always work. So in the last uh, 30, 40 years in particular, many countries have seen the necessity of setting up independent institutions in the Asia-Pacific and in Africa, and in, in, they're called commissions usually, which are not part of the executive government, they're not part of the legislature, and they're not part of the judiciary. So national human rights commissions, independent national human rights commissions, are one sort of independent national monitoring body. Another sort is independent anti-corruption commissions. Now, we haven't had a lot of success in setting up too many of those. A number of governments have passed legislation. But as with human rights commissions, to go back to the problem and the challenges, in many cases, governments don't want to have, quite frankly, um, a national commission that scrutinises what they're doing about the rights of indigenous people or about the rights of you know people who are perhaps in those societies, the subjects of widespread discrimination or fear or ignorance, and who traditionally have had their rights ignored. Um, one of the problems is, uh, another problem is, is simply that while we've developed a lot of international human rights treaties uh, over the last uh, you know, 50 or 60 years, starting with the International Covenants on Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, and then moving into specific international treaties on the rights of women, on the rights of minorities, uh, on the rights of children, on the right not to be tortured, um, on the rights of people with disabilities and so on, uh, we have not at the national level necessarily converted those treaties into uh, a knowledge that people have about what their rights are and the fact that governments have an obligation to respect and protect those rights. And a lot of governments haven't done that. And that's uh, not exactly news to anybody, I'm sure. So governments in some countries have been willing to set up a national commission, but sometimes then have wanted to appoint friends of the president or the prime minister as the commissioners. So we have challenges in that regard. In many countries, one of my problems has been that the government was willing to set up a National Human Rights Commission, but then didn't want to give it adequate financing. You know, set up the commission, but then give it almost no money or a very limited budget so it couldn't do its job. One of the most difficult problems is to ensure that if you set a national commission up with the sorts of powers I've indicated, the power to advise, to research, but to also investigate, to monitor, you've got to give it powers that are commensurate with its responsibilities. So that if you set it up with a series of functions, but you don't give it the power to carry out those functions successfully, you set it up to fail. 
So one of the big challenges we've had in many countries is that governments, because of a combination of international pressure and national pressure from domestic NGOs and the legal profession and so on, um, governments have been ready to set up a commission but have not always been ready to give it either the financial resources or adequate powers to discharge all the functions which the legislation says that it has. Um, frankly, another, I guess another challenge that I can talk about from personal experience is um, governments may be ready to have the commission, but if you're the head of the National Human Rights Commission, or in my case the Federal Human Rights Commission are responsible for a wide range of human rights, I also had commissioners for, for women or sex discrimination in that case and race discrimination, they were two of the earlier conventions. Um, but when we started to come out with reports that were highly critical of what governments want, you know, what our government wasn't doing for homeless young people, or the terrible abuses um, uh, for people with psychiatric disabilities, either because they had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or women with postnatal depression who were not treated adequately, or whatever. Uh, governments sometimes react very negatively. So one of the challenges you have as a National Human Rights Commission is. Uh, actually a challenge of both being advisory and, if necessary, adversarial, and on the other hand, um, being consultative, but also, if you have to be, confrontational. Now, when you're working in a democracy as an independent national commission, I used to remind my staff, I mean, we're not elected. We have to respect the role of the elected government, but we also have to be very clear about our role as an independent commission, which is to be uh, fearless, to be careful, um, very careful in collecting the evidence that we do about violations of human rights. But if there are clear violations, being uh, quite determined um, to speak out and, and to make clear what those violations are, because you're not going to get them addressed and redressed unless you identify them and do that in a, in a, a way that is uh, clearly professional and, and uh, accuracy is, is very, very important in terms of whatever investigations you're doing, be it individual investigations or national inquiries. So it's sometimes very challenging to maintain that balance. Um, again, this book that we've just written about national inquiries points out very clearly, if you become simply confrontational with the government, then the government won't cooperate with you. Uh, in my country, we've had a very big um, a disagreement in the last uh, 18 months between the government of Australia and the National Human Rights Commission on the rights of refugees and asylum seekers and, and the terrible things that have been happening to uh, children who were locked up in detention. But the government had a very the government at the time had a very adverse reaction to that report and the Prime Minister and the Attorney General attacked the Human Rights Commission. Now, I'm ashamed to say that as an Australian, but I'm also proud to say that the Commission and those of us who'd been commissioners and academics and lawyers and many prominent Australians came out and defended the Commission against the government. Um, so the challenges in summary are always there. Um, it's an imperfect world. Um, fighting for human rights is a fight that is never finished. Uh, the role of a National Human Rights Commission in educating people about their rights, in advocating for their rights, in sticking up for their rights, in investigating violations of human rights um, is never something that's, uh, you know, it, it, it's always a work in progress. And so the challenges are out there. Um, sometimes, uh, to be very frank, you find that if a commission is successful and is vigorous 
in its um, approach to government, but criticises government, then the next time the government appoints commissioners, sometimes there's a tendency to appoint commissioners they think might be more friendly. So you can't uh, you can't exactly analyse that in legal terms, but let me tell you as somebody who used to be advisor to some of our political leaders, um, and having seen the way the political process works, that sort of thing happens even in democracy. So there's there's lots and lots of challenges there. What has been the most difficult national inquiry that you have been a part of, and for what reasons was it difficult? Well, in my own particular case, I think of the the two big national inquiries I did, the first one on homeless people and the next one on mental illness, uh, the one on mental illness was extremely uh, challenging. It was very difficult for a whole lot of reasons. It was difficult for me as a lawyer. Uh, because our laws at both the federal and state level were frankly hopelessly out of date. Um, You would know as a young lawyer that uh, for a long time in English common law, and that really is the system in about 50, 53 countries around the world, uh, once you were declared to be uh, insane or mentally ill, you could be locked up and basically deprived of all your rights. So there were terrible cases of people who'd been incarcerated for many years, locked up in psychiatric facilities. Uh, and there were problems of, of, of the fact that the law was just way out of date. I mean, uh, the, the law was middle 19th century in some respects. Secondly, there were problems of definition. Um, the medical profession itself uh, told me at the beginning that they couldn't really diagnose definitively schizoaffective disorders. One of the most difficult mental illnesses is schizophrenia um, or bipolar disorder before somebody was, say, 16, in mid-teens. But I was seeing homeless young people who had very serious mental health problems uh, and hadn't been diagnosed with anything, and that was one of the reasons I did that inquiry. Um, one of the problems that led me to that inquiry was that many of our children who were homeless had come from families where the mother was postnatally depressed. But once I started to examine the evidence, I found out that in our medical schools, which were generally regarded as some of the best in the world, doctors at that stage got six years of training, but only six weeks in the back ward of a psychiatric hospital in terms of their training on mental illness. So many of our general practitioners could not recognize the symptoms of postnatal depression. And in, in many countries like ours, the gateway to the whole to specialists, psychiatrists, is through the, the general practitioners. So there were problems of definition, there were problems of inadequate training, um, both for lawyers and for doctors. But also, I had to look at eight particularly vulnerable groups of people. They included women with postnatal depression. At the other end of the spectrum, they included elderly people who increasingly, in many of our countries now with an aging population, Many hundreds of thousands, now millions of of older people suffer dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common, but there are other forms. Um, 10% of elderly people suffer depression of one sort or another, generally. I mean, that's a a, a broad uh, figure, but uh, it wasn't recognised. In many cases, it wasn't diagnosed. And in my parents' generation, the last thing they were going to go and tell the doctor was that they they were feeling low. Uh, So they didn't get any treatment, even though we had drugs that could help them. In many cases, uh, people with mental illness in rural and isolated areas. If we had any facilities, and we did, but they were in the big cities. If you were in a country town or a village, there were virtually no mental health facilities. So in many cases, people who became psychotic or mentally ill in our country towns were treated like criminals. They were arrested by the police for causing a public disturbance and locked up in the paddy wagon and taken off to the cells, obviously a serious violation of human rights. I mean, people who were basically sick being treated like people who were criminals. Um, We had to look at the problems of young people in particular. That was another vulnerable group. 
um, schizophrenia usually first presents between about 16 and, and the early 20s. Not always, but so um, with those young people, our specialists told me about 10% of them, if they don't get treatment, will commit suicide. So at that side, we, we had about 170, 180,000 um, people with schizophrenia in Australia, and, and thousands of them were literally taking their own life. But we hadn't identified the problem, so in many cases the suicides were not recorded as such, and frankly families didn't talk about it. Um, another particularly vulnerable group were our Aboriginal, our Indigenous people. Now their mental health problems weren't just the sort of mental health problems I'm talking about now, they were serious mental health problems in many cases as the result of being taken away from their land, problems of dispossession. I mean, their whole culture was based on, on land um, and, and once many, in many cases they lost their land, there were serious issues in some of our uh, Aboriginal communities, including in very rural and, uh, and sometimes very isolated areas, which were simply not being addressed by our government or by the medical profession. So we had people from non-English speaking background in my country, uh, millions and millions of people who came uh, initially, uh, their, their children all speak, you know, pretty good English now, but initially Greeks, Italians, Maltese, Lebanese, Vietnamese uh, came to Australia, sometimes after wars in their own country, uh, millions of people, and in many cases they were not diagnosed or misdiagnosed, but we didn't have adequate facilities for interpreters in our hospitals. Um, so there were particular problems that we had to look at, and that's why we had 1,372 uh, witnesses and written submissions, uh, and the problems of analysing the evidence. And my problem as a lawyer, I guess, uh, as, as the Federal Human Rights Commissioner who was chairing that inquiry, was that I had to put before the Parliament and before the government a report that was compelling enough to have our laws changed, to have, we, we got about six or seven hundred million dollars allocated for new programs for mentally ill people. But to do that, you've got to convince the government and the parliament um, that uh, you are really basing your recommendations and findings on compelling evidence. Now, to put it perhaps simplistically, a lot of the evidence I was hearing from people was what lawyers would call anecdotal. An International Human Rights Commission you ask people questions and you follow up those questions, but you don't cross-examine them in court. So I was taking evidence on oath, but in many cases it was very important to have that evidence corroborated, substantiated um, by witnesses in not just one state, but two states, by uh, different witnesses, so that at the end of the day the government didn't say, oh look, this is just a lot of very sad stories, you know, and really this isn't evidence that our mental health system doesn't work. And that was, that was really very challenging, I mean, to try and... I remember um, locking myself up in my beach house, basically, for little beach house for about three months and starting at about five or six in the morning and going till midnight with thousands and thousands of pages of the transcripts. And going through, uh, the staff of the commission, very hard-working staff, had drafted chapters, but going through and checking and double-checking all of the evidence, making sure that we had evidence that corroborated evidence if we were being very critical of the government. I mean, we had evidence of rapes, we had evidence of, of you know, very, very serious crimes. Um, and that had to be documented. It had to be presented in a very um, accurate way, and a, but a very compelling way. So yeah, that, was, that, that inquiry was a big challenge. Thank you. Brian Burdekin is an international advisor to numerous national human rights institutions. He was Special Advisor on International Institutions to the first three United Nations High Commissioners for Human Rights. Burdekin was also Federal Human Rights Commissioner of Australia. 
He's a visiting professor here at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law. Thanks for your time today, Brian. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Thank you for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. 